Hey everybody, this podcast is sponsored by Riverside, an online cloud-based recording studio that is just about as easy as it could possibly be for podcasters to record their interviews remotely. All you have to do is set yourself up with an account, create a new recording studio, email that link out, and then each person's audio and video will be recorded separately, which is a huge, huge feature because not only do you get the ability to process each person's signals individually, which is awesome for audio, but you also get to select how you'd like the video presented. And on top of all of that, everything's recorded in the cloud and downloaded later, which means there isn't a local recording looking better than the guest recording. Everybody gets the quality that's absolutely the best that they can. Now, I've been using this tool for a couple of podcasts now and absolutely love it. However, this interview with Matejs was done back in December, and we decided to hold on to it until he had more stock available. That way, we didn't talk about things that weren't available to purchase yet. So I still think this is a great example of Riverside because I want you to listen to last week's podcast with Justin and see and hear the difference from recording locally versus recording everything on Riverside. I still think this is actually a great example and great promotion to show what their platform can do. And as I continue to do ads for them, I'm going to show different features, different tricks that I've been learning, and other things that you might benefit from while using their platform. So please check out the link below. It's retrorgb.link forward slash Riverside, and then use the code retrorgb30 for 30% off a multi-month or yearly subscription. Okay, on to the interview. Hey everybody, I'm here with Mateis, creator of the Reverse Engineered Game Gear Motherboard. How you doing, my friend? Thank you for, for coming here and for doing this with us. Hi, Bob. Hi, everyone. Yeah, um, I'm here. Thank you for having me over. Um, and yeah, I made a reverse engineered Sega Game Gear mainboard. Or actually, it's a mainboard for the Sega Game Gear. Um, so yeah, let's... Uh, well, you did more than that. You also made replacement uh, companion boards to go with it, often referred to as daughter boards. And on top of that, I see you post pictures of a pick-and-place machine, which is the fact that you have access to one of those is, is cool. So let's just start from the beginning, because I'm interested in all of this stuff, both for why this exact project is important and also how this could be scaled to other things that you work on. So how did you get started reverse engineering a Game Gear motherboard? Um, yeah, actually, I'm I'm doing quite a quite a lot of repairs on uh, on Game Gears because you have problems with uh, leaking capacitors mm. and uh, broken LCD screens. So I was repairing them for for yeah just local uh, local people here. They were sending me in uh, a Game Gear and I replace uh, those parts and then ship it back. Um, however, I had quite some issues with uh, the the sound daughter board. As you call it, like we, we usually call it a soundboard, and um, that the capacitors were actually destroying the copper itself. So the mm. board was uh, unable to repair. So we started to uh, reverse engineer this board. I've been doing this for quite a long time um, on, on Nintendo PlayChoice 10 uh, mm. arcade um, systems. Um, so I knew I could do the such thing. So I made a scan, I, I, I actually reproduced the board. Um, and yeah, I started to, you know, sell those boards as well. 
Um, Do you remember when you did that? Do you remember when you first reverse engineered the soundboard? I think that's uh, around two years ago, uh, to be honest. I might have um, bought one of those from you. <laughs> I don't know. That could be the case, yeah. Yeah. I, I first started with a like a reproduction of the original board. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had a few customers which actually complained after you install a, a, a LCD kit. And there is a step-up converter in it, and it makes like a, a tiny buzzing sound. Mm. Um, so, and that's caused by a by a background plane on the on the soundboard. Uh, so. I actually made a new design, which takes out that little buzzing sound. Um, and they start selling those as well. And yeah, like uh, from one comes another. So um, so that's really also, cool. So how did you yeah. figure that out? Because like you, and I'm going to, I apologize to you and everybody listening. I'm going to keep interrupting because I want to make sure that I get all the details from all the projects that you're working on here. So you first just reverse engineered the exact design of the soundboard for the Game Gear. And then through your customers, you found out that not your reverse engineered design, but the original Sega design would have issues with some of these screens because of the voltage conversion. So how did you figure out how to fix that to make your version of it? Yeah, that's that, it was a particular version of the board. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the first version of the Game Gear, that was actually a four-layer PCB. Um and later, the second version, the, what we call the, the single ASIC one, mm-hmm. uh, it's a two-layer PCB. And when you when you make a scan of the of the PCB, I saw that it, it had like a really poor crown plane because you simply saw that it, it was lacking it. <laughs> like, uh, and that was something like, yeah, like yeah, let's let's first you know create the original board and then see you know what's uh, what's on. The actually the original board works fine on an original Game Gear. There mm-hmm. is no issues with it. But if you take especially the the Chinese LCD kits, there you get this particular buzzing sound, which can be quite annoying. Uh, mm. So you increased the thickness of the ground plane. No, it was actually it was uh, it simply isn't there. Like oh. there is a. <laughs> I heard Tito mention that in his video, and I was like, "I wonder what he meant by that." Yeah, that's that's very funny. Okay, so you added a, a ground plane layer so that um, you could filter a lot of the stuff out through that. Yeah, actually, and the thing is, with the first version, because the four layer PCB, they they had the the inner layer set the ground plane there. Mm-hmm. But then they they switched their production over to a two layer. And they simply left out this, uh, yeah, the ground plane. And it, 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 I think because of that, it's lacking. And you see in the in the later version and the V four V five model, uh, which is only available in the US, and their their ground plane is back in. Like I think they saw the actual issue. But yeah, I I think they sold so many units already that they yeah. Uh, they didn't, they didn't really care about it. But uh, yeah. at some point, they saw the issue. So could that be one of the many, probably multiple reasons why some revision game gears, even completely stock, were just noisier through the headphone ports than others? Yes. Because uh, yeah, I assumed the, it was wear and tear, but when I started to get into recapping, and especially my friends that do a much better job at recapping than I do, I would I would play around for a few minutes with a fully refurbished Game Gear, brand new caps, professionally done, 
and some would be fine and others I'd have my headphones in and I'd hear that weird hum and I could I never I just assumed that like with many Sega products there's so many different revisions that there were just mistakes in some and I I guess I guessed correctly <laughs> so. yeah yeah like uh, if you have to defeat one revision then most likely you have a bit of buzzing in it and and that's uh yeah I, I had some people complaining about it and I think it's it's fair you know like before it wasn't doing it because without the LCD kit you will notice it but it's not that loud but if you put the LCD kit in it that's, mm. uh, you can actually hear it pretty bad now your replacement soundboards will fit in any model Game Gear right? yeah actually there are two different type of connectors mm-hmm. um, so in, in, in the early versions uh, which were all which are only available in, in, uh, in Japan and Europe uh, or let's say different in the versions that are only available in Japan and Europe. You have this uh, this um, uh, uh, Tyco Electronics connector, mm-hmm. AMP, and um, that's one I sell. But in the US models, you will find a, a JST connector, mm-hmm. which is I think more common uh, uh, these days. Uh, and I also sell those. Like a lot of other boards available replacement boards only sell this uh, this um this tyco uh, connector mm-hmm. but if you leave me a message i also assemble the other one the jst one because i have both available so that's um i, I yeah basically I, the boards will work for any version um any revision of the game gear so um, it only depends a bit on the connector so just to clarify about that, then, if somebody were to cut the end off of their wire inside their game gear and solder it directly to the board, the connector wouldn't really matter, right? Yeah, exactly. And yeah. to go back to your customers, it might have been totally plausible that they had a game gear that originally had the better sound boards from the factory, and then the caps leaked and it died, and they put yours in that was the copy of the other one and got the buzz. So it was actually yeah. really good feedback and development that your, some of your customers were, were able to give you that info. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah that's, um, I, 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 at some point I also started to notice it. So like, Oh yeah, this, this is not good. Uh, and, and I also noticed that it only was happening with the Chinese LCD kit, like the older LCD kits that had, had the issue. But I think this Chinese support, they simply take the cheapest of the cheapest yeah. parts they can find. So, yeah, but personally, I, I don't prefer using them anymore. But, yeah, if people are using them, uh, I recommend you either take a first revision soundboard or or buy a new one. Uh, that's uh, Yeah, I mean, that's, that's actually... That's a very common practice in that a lot of companies in China just say, well, we have the price advantage. You know, we do the manufacturing here. We, we get everything ready here so we could sell them cheaper. So how could we sell them even cheaper so that people have alternatives? So, yeah, they, they use lower quality parts. And sometimes it doesn't matter. And sometimes like this, it absolutely matters. So I just I always like to be very careful because. Uh, nerds in the tech world, when you hear things like cheap Chinese clones or cheaper Chinese manufacturing, we know what we're talking about. But a lot of other people take that as like, why are you saying Chinese people make low quality stuff? That's not what we're saying at all. But I just I want to make sure that everybody listening of all skill levels understand that. And I don't think it's always a bad thing. But if you're going for something that you want higher quality parts, you want to make sure that it's made wherever in the world that it's made with the better stuff in it. So I, you know, in 
a lot of, I mean, you just proved with the soundboard design too, that sometimes if there's no other option than the cheaper ones, as long as you have everything else around it, high quality, it could sometimes compensate for that. So you adding the better ground or you adding the ground plane and, and, you know, the build quality could sometimes compensate for those cheaper LCDs. But I do think that if possible, you know, people should aim for the better quality ones. Um, and and there's, there's also like one of the fun things we just said that I have a PNP machine at home. Um, before I, w- I, I had my assembly done in China. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I notice is when they don't have the parts available, or I think when they have their PNP machines fit with a cheaper part, they simply assemble the cheaper part on it or the other part, let's say like that, the other part, which you didn't request. That's something that happens quite a lot in these these uh, small uh, prototype uh, assembly uh, plants. Hmm. Uh, because if if you look in the PMP street, like you need to have those parts available. You cannot just you know like keep on swapping those parts. So, uh, you, I, I actually I I assume they simply put other parts on your board which have the same specifications, but it's not what you asked for. <laughs> That's yeah. Yeah, we ran into a problem years ago. I worked, uh, I'll make this short because I've told the story a bunch of times, but uh, I worked for a company that designed medical grade computers and the internal DC to DC power supply, we got rated. It was, uh, we paid a lot of money to get it certified for use in medical use. And we got maybe a hundred prototypes that were flawless. And then we did a first manufacturing run and we started releasing them into the field and a bunch of them just started dying. So we got it back and we realized that the company making the power supplies did exactly that. They swapped out the capacitors for cheaper ones and a couple of the other parts on it that looked almost identical, but they weren't. And we had to go and we had to send a team of people to replace 5,000 power supplies in computers. Some were still in a warehouse, luckily, but some were on site. So it's just, um, you know, wherever you get your stuff made, you have to do good quality control or or get a pick and place Pick-and-place machine yourself. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, so at some point I, I made the decision like, uh, yeah, like I'm done with it. Also, also you, you pay quite some money for the assembly, even though it's in China. Mm. Uh, and uh, why not do it yourself? Because in the end, it's it's not that much of work to, to set the machine up. And once it's set up, you, yeah, it, um, you can easily assemble 100, 200, 500 ports. Uh, so small production runs, which, yeah, for me, that's that's the perfect solution. Mm-hmm. Um, I did actually have the opposite experience. For a very short period of time, I was selling those RGB boards based on Bordy's design for uh, SNES Mini and N64. And every time I did an, a new order, I would install one. I, I probably should have done this in the opposite uh, order, but I would install it in one of the two consoles, an N64 or an uh, SNES, and I would test it that way. And I never once had one fail. And then afterwards, I would remove the components to double check that they were the 1% tolerant and everything. And I never had one fail from the factory, and I never had a batch that had bad parts on it. But we're also talking about a component with one THS chip and like four... SMD components so you know it's it's not like a design with a ton of components on it so it's you know I guess it's all I I know we're getting a little bit sidetracked here but I guess when you're making stuff it's all about quality control whether you make it yourself whether you have somebody else make it you know just make it very clear when you're talking to these manufacturing houses that hey in this contract let's say that I'm going to test 
one or two out of every batch. And if they're bad, if you switch the parts, I'm sending them all back. You're paying for shipping and you're making the other one for free. And I think when you when you politely put those terms in, that they know that you mean business and that you're not just here to get some cheap part made. Um, and I've had very good luck when I politely made, you know, put that in the terms that I will be checking every one of these things. So it's all about quality control because you could do the same thing, right? You could not be paying attention, accidentally order the wrong part. It looks the same. So you throw it on your pick and place machine and then, you know, you've just made a hundred of them with the wrong part. So it's all about good, yeah, good yeah, quality control. Definitely check all your parts you receive. Yes, that's uh I've done that before hand soldering <laughs> things. I think I had one thing where I used a, uh, 750 ohm resistor instead of a 75 ohm resistor and i put this complicated board together and i couldn't figure out why i wasn't getting any sync on the screen uh and then we kind of went through and one of my friends was like is that a 750 ohm resistor and i went oh moron i only made one though so that was you know a little different um so i guess since we're talking about it we'll swing back around but how did you end up with a pick and place machine <laughs> Yeah, because either either they couldn't supply those parts on the board, or they 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 simply swapped it out with different ones. <laughs> and then I had also I had the challenge because uh, the Sega board it has a custom chip mm -hmm. from Sega, which which you cannot buy. Like I would love to buy you know a, a tray of it, but I, yeah, too bad I cannot buy them. So I desoldered them. Um, and it's a yeah, it's a QFP one forty four. So it's um, yeah, it's it has a tiny pitch. Uh, so yeah, you need some uh, you need to sit down uh, a bit and then uh, do the hand soldering. Um, so I decided I want a bigger place machine that can actually mount the the, the Sega chip. Um, and then you ended up you at, at a bit more high end machines uh, for for prototyping. Those are really expensive uh, though, right? Yeah, they cost money. Because yes. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend that looked a, into one, and I think he he was going to spend about twenty thousand dollars on one to make his own boards. Um, that that's yeah, that's a lot. It, that's that's around the uh, actually is a used machine. Mm -hmm. So I bought it. Uh, it's a uh, it's two years old, um, and they were doing uh, also like the, the that uh, factory was doing small run uh, PCB assembly, uh, but but like one of the things is. As soon as you start working with such machines, you run out of feeders. Every feeder can hold one one component. Uh, this the one I had has I think forty eight feeders, so we can place forty eight different components in there. And as soon as you start with with a small run of assembly, you will run out of parts. You know you need more parts. Then you have the decision either to buy you know a, a second machine in line, or you um, you buy a bigger machine so they went for the bigger machine um and they, they put this one on sale uh, and uh, yeah i found it <laughs> contacted guys and they said i want to have it because it fits my uh for me it fits my requirements it's not that big um so um yeah i bought it and actually yeah it's it's doing exactly you know what i wanted it to do and i think that's uh, that's great so if people want to see it in action i saw that you posted short videos of it on your social media so people could actually watch this thing go but um i've i've seen them in person i've obviously worked with companies that have used them but i've never programmed or used one myself so i'm kind of interested when you said it had the 48 trays so does that mean everything that you manufacture can't have more than 48 total components on the board uh, yeah you cannot have 48 different 
type of component. So you you can have like there are simply uh, are five thousand resistors on on one uh, reel, mm-hmm. um, but uh, so you can every time it, it will you know swap next to the next uh, uh, next component in the tape, but you cannot have more than forty eight components there. You know different types of one. So when you assemble the board, you know you start to look at where can I reuse resistor values? Um, where can I uh, swap some uh, capacitors? You know, like that you end up with the same uh, components, maybe you know a bigger spec, but it has the same value. Like these kind of things. It's the same like uh, some some parts. They are uh, like the the zero six zero three resistors, and some parts are the the, the zero eight zero five. But if you have the same value on the board, then and then you simply swap the footprint to the to the bigger one. So <laughs> it's all good, you know. So you need to be think a bit more efficient um, and 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 the assembly, not not when you design the board that is everything according to you know what what you calculated. Um, but everything, you know, you need to think about how how it fits in your assembly as well. Yeah, because you're limited in the amount of, of components you have. That's a very big advantage of making things in quantities of hundreds or thousands as opposed to hundreds of thousands or millions. Because if you have 300 ohm resistors and one only requires 5 volts and the, the other two require 10 volts and 20 volts, you could, on a smaller run, just have three you know, 100 ohm, 20 volt tolerant resistors on there. And if you lost the, you know, 45 cents total per board or something, it doesn't matter. But if you are making a million of those, that's a lot, that's half a million dollars lost almost, right? So we, we in our smaller, you know, indie runs of production get to do things like that. And same thing with the size. Uh, If you want, you know, if all of the components are, or have the correct tolerances, you could use all smaller ones instead of bigger ones. And, you know, same thing with capacitors, right? You could use, as long as it's the, the correct capacitance, you could go up to a, a million volt tolerance and it doesn't matter. So the, it's kind of neat that we have the ability to do that, whereas bigger companies, there's no way. They would just lose money for no reason, so. Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and for me, I would be losing money, you know, by having, wasting multiple feeders because it's actually, it's possible to, you can you can tune things in the machine a bit that you uh, put like things on on a on a uh, on a tray. Mm-hmm. So you can you can fiddle around with with the, with components a bit like how you how you align mm-hmm. that. Um, but still, yeah, in the end, you, you know, you need to I, I you need to try to make one program allow to run one time <laughs> instead of that you swap components and maybe do a second run because that's also possible. But that, that simply a lot a lot of work to do to swap those mm. uh, components uh, from the machine so yeah, yeah that's actually the other question is can you do two runs so can you send a board with 100 components you know so double the or let's just say 75 right so you send them through one run of production and then swap the parts out and can you send them through a second run to populate the other side yeah it's it's possible but then you need to swap the 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 components every time. Hmm. Actually, what what happens then is they they buy a second machine, and because it's a conveyor, you simply let us run to the second machine. Oh, that makes sense. So you at home might do two runs, but a manufacturing company would either just get a bigger machine or a second machine to because it would be way more efficient if that's your job is just making boards. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. They have, they have a line of machines next to each other. 
they are simply placing bars on all the boards. That's pretty That's, cool. Uh, Have you ever seen yeah. um, the wave soldering machines? Yeah, I, I've seen them. Yes, That's, uh, those <laughs> Actually, are nuts. <laughs> I, I have a very small one. Um, uh, sorry, no, I have a small reflow, but yeah, like the, the company where I bought the PNP from, they had a wave soldering machine. And like also, like they had a they actually had almost a full assembly line uh, for what they were doing. So that, that was cool to see. Um, yeah, I, I saw one of those once because I was in Taiwan uh, and they were giving us a factory tour. And I said, oh, let's see that. And I think... I think they thought that I was like an expert and wanted to check that they were using a good machine, but I was just a nerd that wanted to watch the machine work. So they brought me through and showed me, I was like, oh, that's awesome. All right, thanks. <laughs> so, well, that that's incredible that you do that. Um, and I was just so curious about that, but I guess let's swing back to um, the, the boards itself. So you did um, the soundboard first, and then I believe you went on to the power board, right? No, actually, the the this, the second one because I, I I'm repairing a lot of, of game gears, mm -hmm. um, and I also like at some point you see that uh, the capacitors simply eat all the copper, mm -hmm. uh, so the board is no longer to able to repair. Like yeah, you can make new traces, but I, at some point it starts to fail again. So I stopped doing that. I simply told my customer like it's it's over with this one. Uh, I will sell you a different one. <laughs> um, but I had, had a stack of boards, you know, starting to grow. Um, so I, I knew I could do this with the with the Nintendo Play Choice um, and with the soundboard. Um, so I thought, like, let's give it a try with the uh, with the Sega Game Gear main board. And uh, yeah, but actually, it, it, it worked out. You know, like it's. Uh, so did you do the Play Choice first or the Game Gear first? I did Play Choice years ago. Um, I, I, I had the same thing with the, with the with the arcade the old arcades they start to rust mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because they usually stored in a bad condition mm -hmm. and then the the um the the IC sockets start to rust and that's also giving a really bad damage to the board so I had a few of those boards I stripped all the parts made a scan of it and then you retrace the original board because there is also no schematic from it like. Uh, so you need to do something um and i think i i did uh, all, all boards available for the play choice then and i also did the the main board because uh back then also people started to contact me like hey yeah um, can you also do you know more can you do the main board uh, yes i can do the main board <laughs> So, I mean, that, that all of this sounds like a huge undertaking. So in order to start doing this, you first would, um, you would first have to get a list of all of the components on the board, right? So yes. doing that manually, doesn't that require you to take off every single component and measure them? Yes. And then how, for things like capacitors, where it's capacitance decays as the part does, is there a way to verify which one was supposed to be there versus whatever part was broken when you were removing it? It's sometimes you add schematics, sometimes you can read it, you know, the the little code on it. All the ones you simply uh, measure with a with a LCR mm -hmm. meter. Uh, that's yeah, that's <laughs> bit of a... that's nerve wracking. So every uh, single yeah. component you have to measure, mark off, and basically make your own bill of materials your own bomb for it and then after you remove every single component then you put it in a scanner to scan the traces on it correct yes yes i may make a 
uh, make a scan of the board. Mm. Uh, and that's also fun. Like you have two types of scanners. I, I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, we have a scanner that simply has a has an optical lens, and it makes it's like one small sensor, and it, it stretches out the image. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is some um, distortion in it, so the the image is actually not correct. Mm. What you get, and that's for most pictures. If you scan a, a photo, it, it doesn't matter. But if you if you're scanning a PCB, you you need accuracy. Like everything <laughs> needs to be correct. <laughs> Uh, and that's like one of the challenges I had. And then I, I, I came to, I was reading a bit about scanners and there is also like the very cheap scanners, which are, uh, which are simply USB powered. Mm-hmm. They, they have an image sensor over the entire line. So it, it simply drags this entire big image sensor um, over the entire uh, 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 scanner of the plate. And those ones are accurate. So the cheap ones, the really cheap USB powered, those are CCD scanners. Um, you can you can use those for scanning PCBs. Huh. Um, I never knew that. <laughs> that's uh, and then you can scan it. Uh, and once you have I, once I have a scan, I, I do some photoshopping uh, to to change a bit more contrast to make it straight. You know all, all, all those kind of things. Um, and I'm then using the software from. Um, Abacom, it's called Sprint Layout. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know it. No. Um, but it actually has the option to set the scan image as a background. And then you can place the paths on, you know, the scanned image um. and you can retrace the entire board. Okay. So now I'm assuming you could only do this with a two layer board because you're not separating the layers and seeing in between them, right? Actually, the software supports four layer boards, but I, I have no clue how to separate <laughs> four layer boards. And, and I mean, for anybody that's unaware of this but curious, two layer board is, is is as literal as it sounds. One layer on the top, flip it over, and there's another layer on the bottom, and uh, the traces just go, and you could connect them through uh, with through holes with vias. So, um, and then four layer boards is usually multiple layers and then you have a layer that's a ground plane and sometimes a layer that's a power plane depending on how you want it set up and that gets way more complicated and i started looking at its schematic for a six layer board years ago when i was trying to find a ground issue and it just it hurt my brain (laughs) so that's a i think that's my limit is uh looking at schematics i think four four layers is about all i could do and i'm not even good at that by the way but um also, but that's pretty cool. Worked on, on those, yeah. That's uh, <laughs> that's maybe a next level, uh, you know. Like uh, uh, we're good with two layers, uh, but yeah, still, I, I don't know how to separate actually, you know, two boards. I, I I've read read on the internet it's possible with some 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 chemicals, but never gave it a try. Uh, to be honest. Hmm. So when you're when you're doing this stuff, then so you you create your own bill of materials, you measure every single component, you mark off the proprietary components that are only available from that company. You did the scan, you uh, you set it as the background and you basically traced in software over the original um, over the original traces and, uh, and layout and where everything went. And then in order to make replacements, you would then take every part that's still available over the uh, just basic 
on the shelf parts like resistors, capacitors, uh, you know, power components. And for the Play Choice 10, you would just fill all of those and then leave the stuff that's Nintendo only empty. And then that way you could create a replacement. So if people have a dead board rather than trying to repair traces, trying to fix leaky capacitors that burnt through the motherboard, you could just remove the main components on it. Um, and that would be the same theory for the Game Gear as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah correct. And did you sell uh, populated PlayChoice 10 boards or did you just sell the PCBs or was that more of just a reverse I, engineering project? I, I did reverse engineering, uh, but the PlayChoice 10 is not as popular in Europe. Mm. Actually, you rarely see them. Um, uh, but in the US, they are, I think they're, they're actually pretty popular. Yeah. Um, and so I, I'm not selling any boards here, but um, I'm, I'm shipping them to a guy in the US and he's populating them and, uh, and, and selling them. That's very cool. I will get links to all of these things from you when we're done. And I'll make sure that anybody listening, wherever you're listening, you have links to all of this stuff if you're interested. But I think there's probably a whole bunch of people that have PlayChoice 10 machines that are giving them trouble that would love to do this instead because, you know, it's brand new and original at the same time you know <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, that's very cool so then after you practiced on the play choice 10 which is nuts because that's a bigger board with more components um did you find it easier to do the game gear because because you already had all that experience doing the play choice 10 first yeah <laughs> The actual, actually, the boards from Nintendo, and that's I think with all the boards from Nintendo, they they are so nicely designed. Mm. Like they they really work on grids. Like they they are you know when you look at the board, they are a bit self-explaining. And then you have the Sega board. <laughs> Sega was this one was pretty hard to retrace everything because. They don't work on grids. Actually, they work on grids, um, but they actually mix two different grids on one board. Hmm. So <laughs> that's really like they were—they they were going from a grid from 0.35 millimeters uh, to um, I think it was 0.2, and and that was happening somewhere in the middle of the trace, and that that makes it really hard when you're retracing because you expect something and then you think, oh, I made a wrong scan. And then you start to line things up again. And then at some point I came to the conclusion, hey, at this point, you're simply changing the grid. But where does it stop? Yeah, that's so <laughs> like, strange. Where does it start? What would the purpose really of doing strange. that be? Why I don't understand why somebody would do that. I, I also, I don't understand. I think they had some, some issues with the... Um, uh, with with the uh, you know the dimension of the board, I think they couldn't fit enough traces there, um, and I think they 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 got into an issue. Maybe you know later in the design, like oh yeah, maybe we need to add this, you know, like something like that. So rather than go and, back and redesign it the right way, they just fixed the one or two things that they needed to fix in order to make it work. That sounds very yeah. Sega. That sounds like a very Sega thing to do. It's it's also like it's the second revision of the board, so they went from a four-layer design to a two-layer uh, design, hmm. and and the form factor was already there, so they, I I think they couldn't you know make the 
console any any bigger. It had to had to look the same as the, as the previous revision. So I think they that's why they did something silly with the grid because it's exactly on the. So when you look at the at the Sega PCB, this one is it's is exactly on on this this narrow side where they changed the grid. Huh. <laughs> and 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 when when I did the uh, with when I did the scan, there were there were actually more traces there. So I I removed a lot of components. Um, and I could remove a lot of traces, um, so I, I I freed up some space on the board. But because it had like a, an old LCD, um, yeah, th there were more traces there. <laughs> so I think that's that's that was their issue. But yeah, we we will never know unless we ask Sega themselves. But I don't think they will. Uh, you know, it's funny. Cool. All the stories I've heard over the years of people asking original Sega engineers questions like that, the answer is usually, I, I don't know. We did what we had to do to get it done. I don't remember. Yeah. But, so it's, you know, it's kind of cool. I mean, it's they were the underdog. They they got a lot of this stuff done. Uh, you know, when probably people didn't expect them to pull it off, and they were. So they get a lot of credit for that. But also, you know, looking back at some of these things, I there are so many. I'm not even a board expert, not even close, by the way. But there are so many things even I've seen that I go. Why the hell would anybody do that? <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. So, yeah, I guess whatever it took to get it done is, is what Sega did to make it happen. Um, yeah, that's 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 really like when you sometimes when you look at the scan, then you think like, what, what what is this even doing? You know, like what's the purpose of it? You know, and that's I think you will narrow. That's what you say. Like I think they 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 did make it happen. Uh, I think also the competition was was very big uh, with Nintendo. So I think they. Yeah, they did. They did everything, you know. Like, uh, yeah. So, um, on the Game Gear motherboard that you designed, you'd removed all of the components that had everything to do with the LCD original LCD screen, which I think was a really good move because if somebody wants an all original restored Game Gear for for whatever reason, nostalgia, archiving, whatever, then yeah, take the time to. To revert or to replace all the caps to clean up the original motherboard, use the original screen. If you find one with a motherboard that's too damaged, pick up another one. You know, so that and they're cheap enough where you could do that, especially if if you're willing to put so much time and effort into restoring the original. So I, I really like that you that you approached it from the opposite because I don't think there would be any reason to have an exact original replacement because it's still not you know, it's technically not original. So if somebody wanted to archive this, to have it in their own personal museum in their house, they're going to want the original board. But if somebody wants to play a Game Gear, to actually sit there and play it and enjoy looking at a screen that you could see, you're going to want to use a modern option and you don't really care about stuff like that. And rather than spending eight hours cleaning up, you know, corroded traces and rerunning traces, it's for an expert, it's actually much easier to replace those chips and put it on a different one. So I, I think that was such a good move, and I think that was the right thing to do. But um, can you talk a little bit about the decision to that and to do that? And also, I think you said that you had the original scans that you were at some point going to release in case somebody ever did want to go and just, for archival purposes, have the original traces. Yeah, so I, I actually I have a few boards Um that there are simply a reproduction of the original because I, I did a retrace of the original board, so I have the the the, the Gerber files. Um, 
and so and I actually don't want to publish them because they are very useful when you want to to repair things. Like you can simply click on the trace and you see where it's, where it starts and where it ends. So for that purpose, I want to to release them. Um, and I actually, I have a few boards, but I, I did not even take the you know the effort to assemble them because I think yeah, then you're stuck with it exactly with an with an old LCD that nobody i think nobody really enjoys playing with when you have like a new machine like so that was for me also like i, I wanted to to make something which which was having all new parts except for the few custom parts um so why and that's i think fun about this the game gear i think I, uh, when one year ago retro 6 released new shell for it um which is also great. Um, I thought like I can simply make a game here with all new parts, except for the this, the ASIC chip, the cartridge connector, and the silly extension port connector, which is also <laughs> custom. And yeah, that yeah for for the LCD screen, yeah, there are kits available. You know, like I, I don't even order to create my own kit because I think the, the, the kits which are available uh, they're good like they don't need any any improvement um, so I uh, I simply wanted something that fits in the you know what's what's on what's available mm. today um yeah but that's oh damn it <laughs> so that makes sense the um the LCD kits are good all the ones that I've seen however I I don't understand why I, I maybe I'm missing something, but if you take the Game Gear's resolution and you multiply it by four, isn't that five seventy six P? So isn't that a, a standard European resolution that you might find? I don't think there's uh, any yeah. L C D I don't think anybody's made a mod that just, you know, quadruples the scales the image exactly four and then sends it to one of those. I, it could be screen availability because the only 576p screens I've seen were like 10 inches, not, you know, whatever else. But um, I think that would be kind of the best because, uh, or I guess what the analog pocket's doing and scale it 10x and, you know, to, to something like that. Because I do think there's there's some issues. And Tito goes over all of these in his videos. So if anybody's wondering what I'm talking about, you know, just check out Macho Nacho Productions and watch the Game Gear videos. But I do think there's there's still room for improvement. And of course, you know, the ideal perfect world solution would be if somebody created OLED screens that were the same size and the exact original resolution. Uh, but I don't think anybody's going to do that. Just, just saying, there's always room for improvement. But the important thing that's relevant to your project is it doesn't matter. You have the pads available for people to add any LCD screen and it's their screen that adds the components that does the scaling to whatever chip or to whatever resolution screen is in there, right? Yeah, correct, correct. And and like I also I got a lot of uh, feedback about that I should add like things like a HDMI out or a, a, a VGA out. But the thing is, the, the the board itself doesn't do that. It's always the the aftermarket LCD kit mm. that you know changes the the video itself to you know to to this this new LCD, you know, a normal LCD. Um. So, so the, the HDMI out, I, I cannot 
then I need to, you know, basically do the same thing as what what those LCD boards are doing, you know, like you would need to design a scaler for the Game Gear from scratch and integrate it onto your yeah. board. It's way harder than yeah. just like, oh, I'll throw an HDMI chip on there. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. You have to you have to translate all of the video signals to do that. However, I do see an opportunity for that because the link port is cool. Uh, I don't I think I've used it once in my entire life, including when I was a kid that I, when I had a Game Gear. But that's a spot that's now open for whatever you'd like. So you totally could put an HDMI port there if you wanted to. And it just, it allows you room to grow, but that's a, that's a lot. So unless somebody had an open source design that they were willing to, to offer you, then I just wouldn't, I, I don't know if I would go through that much trouble, especially when there's so many other options available. But I mean, you never know, maybe, maybe a couple months from now, or maybe somebody's going to be listening to this and say, you know, I've been working on a Game Gear scaler here. Just all open source it, take it, throw it on your board and, and do that. And that would be cool. But I don't expect you to write that from scratch. <laughs> no, no. Yeah, that's that's that was also not my plan, uh, to be honest. Uh, like my uh, I have some some experience with with um, uh, programming microchips, but not at that level, mm. <laughs> to be honest. So uh, that's yeah. I think that for for such things, I also need to you know develop myself more. Uh, maybe who knows in the future, but uh, <laughs> right now, yeah. But something like that being open to collaborations is pretty awesome because if somebody you know now that you've removed all those unnecessary components, there's a lot of room on that board to do other things. So if somebody does want to step up and partner up with you to make their project, um, this is. A, a, the perfect platform to do it because you could do whatever you want on the board from scratch. So, yeah, yeah, that's exactly like I, I, I because the Game Gear itself it has like a, a gap. Uh, there is like I can simply have the entire board. You know, you you, you don't need the gap. I, actually, the, the the fun thing behind the gap is I, I produce everything in one. Oh, <laughs> that's neat. So, so that it, it all rolls out and then you just snip the other boards out when you're done, right? Yeah. So I make a, a one panel which has the, the main board, the sound board, and the, and the power board. Um, and that's actually also how Sega did it back then. Hmm. Uh, so I simply, you know, stole their um, ID. <laughs> that's really and, cool. Uh, and, and so I create everything all at one, but I could also fill that gap, you know, and and you can place things like either an LCD kit on it or um, like a, um, a cartridge emulator, like a AfroDrive hmm. type of thing. Um, but yeah, like I think the options are endless because you still have uh, a huge space uh, available uh, on, on the main board. So there are things possible. But yeah, let's uh, maybe somebody is, is yeah uh, willing to uh, yeah, we're with me. I, I, I had, I'm talking a bit with Ben Fan. Yeah. Um, and and he also sees options, but yeah, this, uh, yeah, maybe in the future, you know. <laughs> yeah, that would be very cool. I interviewed Ben a few years ago. It was, uh, you know, he's got a lot of cool things that he works on. So uh, it'd be neat to see this done. Yeah, I, I think that would also would be cool to have just, you know, one single board rolling off the shelf. Where you just put the ASIC on, mm. um, don't even bother anymore about the cartridge connector because there you can do a, 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 a cartridge emulator there. Mm -hmm. uh, 
have the LCD kit already done, and and the only thing you need to swap is the ASIC, and then you know, you basically have a brand new board. You know that having it, the cartridge slot being optional would be ideal. So if somebody just wants to play ROMs, stick a you know a micro SD slot in there somehow. But um, if if somebody does want to go through the trouble of adding it, you know that would be cool, and that way uh, you would just need an auto detect circuit. Um, so that when the cartridge is in, it disables the other thing. But yeah, I think that would be absolutely awesome. Yeah, because I think it's able. You're able to probe to see if there is a cartridge, um, if there is as a cartridge uh, inserted in the in the in the board. I think if you probe a few pins, you can actually see. You know, you can see if there is something there or not. So, and then you can switch between the emulator and the and the cartridge itself. But, yeah, it needs you know some somebody has to take a look into this. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty neat. Um, and for the power board, it was just uh, an exact copy of the original. Did you look into any of the modern component replacements for that? Yeah. So I first wanted to do like a power board that that was pretty much giving the same options as the original one, only with more modern components. But I, I had the issue with the battery springs, like they're also non-standard. And that would mean I, I had to ask, you know, a, a Chinese company to create new battery springs. And you're then you're looking at mass production again. And I had something like, why even bother with the battery springs? Um, because I can also connect like a, a LiPo battery to it. Mm. And saved myself the trouble of sourcing battery springs. <laughs> and so I redesigned, or I, I actually created a new board um, with a USB-C uh, instead of a you know a normal uh, DC jack, um, and a and a small cable with a with a, a JST connector to it, which pops out in the any battery component, and from there you can connect the battery. So it uh, it has a has a voltage regulator on it, has a, a charger chip on it, and uh, it's pretty simple, actually. So um, with this design, you don't use AA batteries at all anymore. You just don't put anything in there. You use the battery that you included on the inside. Yes. And that yeah, also actually, allows you to play and charge at the same time. Yes, correct. Yeah. Very cool. Huh. And it's, yeah, it gives also the option, you know, to connect the standard USB-C which I think everybody has these days uh, instead of, you know, the, the old Sega rig, which, uh, yeah. <laughs> which those themselves are aging and the capacitors I've seen go in those. So that's why I always recommend the triads, but that's like a, that's a $20 power supply, you know, after shipping and everything like that. So to have USB-C built in, you're right. I think even if people don't have the cable, everybody's got some kind of higher powered USB charger. So to order a $3 cable is, is going to be way easier for that. And it also makes it lighter because, you know, a Game Gear with six AA batteries in it is is way heavier than something with just a, you know, a lithium ion battery in there. Yes. And also like back in the days, uh, Game Gear was lasting a few hours on six uh, batteries. I think that was, <laughs> was one of my problems when I was a kid. Um, uh, but the thing is, after I removed all components, and also I'm using like the modern LCD kits, I reduced the the power consumption of the of the of the Game Gear itself a lot. Um, so with a very small uh, LiPo battery, 
Um, we're doing, doing some tests with a 2000 milliamps one, um, and the, the game gear lasted for more than eight hours. Hmm. That's a so, huge difference. <laughs> yes, that's that that's you know that that's even more than on you know an original one on six batteries. So and, and it makes the, the the console a lot lighter. Exactly. Hmm. Like so, we we also did a test with the with the Rage for six battery uh, uh, kit. You know they they also provide a, a lipo battery kit. Uh, which has uh, two batteries of 3,000 uh, milliamps, and it lasts more than a day. Uh, <laughs> so that's uh, for me. That was a bit, you know, like I think one day is great, but it's yeah, like uh, I think eight hours was sufficient to be honest. Um, Jeez, that's awesome. So, um, so now that this project, um, the single ASIC uh, reverse engineering. It is pretty is pretty matured. Are you, what are your next things that you're working on? I know you mentioned potentially looking into the other model Game Gear motherboards as well. Um, have you decided to go ahead with that, or are you still just deciding? Um, at first, what I want to is a bit more optimization on on the assembly, mm-hmm. and that that's mainly because currently the the soldering the LCD kit to it. it, it I think that. That consumes most of the time. I think I sold the ASIC to it in less than two minutes, um, and, and actually installing the LCD screen takes more time. So I want to optimize that a bit. I wonder if just um, a JST connector would work, and then that way you could make a custom cable for the LCD kits. So that way you only the uh, customers uh, just plug them in. I, are you just reading on 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 the Benfan Discord or? Uh, no, I've been making <laughs> products for 15 years now, so my brain automatically goes to the most efficient answer. <laughs> yeah, so I, I actually I I I put some because I already have the pads. I, I aligned the pads in a way that uh, that they, they match with the Ben Van kit. Um, I put some holes in it, so the JST connector is there. Um, however, the the Ben Van kit it, it it has pads, just solder pads. There is no GST uh, connector or option for it. So I made a little PCB where it simply uh, you you put it on the or I design it. I still need to have it manufactured, uh, which you, you simply solder it on the um, Ben Van kit, and it creates a GST connector. Oh, neat! Well, that's awesome. <laughs> so that's. It's simply then connecting yeah, two GSD connectors together and, and we're good. Uh, that, that's actually what was in my mind. Um, it's also a bit uh, low budget mm. because it's like you can create a, a flex uh, PCB, but for small quantities, those things Very expensive. are very <laughs> expensive. And it, and it doesn't give you the option to actually remove the kit mm. because I have some customers who are asking like, Hey, yeah, can you send me a new mainboard? But I cannot assemble the chip. So can you assemble the chip for me? But I think, yeah, then I also, I, I need to test the screen and the only way to test the screen that is to assault, assemble the screen, you know? Um, so I think I need something that I can also remove after I tested it. So you can do a quick test and then say, Oh, it's working. Uh, ship it out to the customer. Mm. As that's that's why I personally prefer to have a, a GSD connector. Um, oh, there. I agree. And these screens, especially for Game Boy Color, it seems like there was a new screen every other week for for like a year. And there's more screens for the Game Gear as well popping up. So for the customer's end of things, being able to just unplug 
what was already there and plug in the latest model would be great. You know, that way it saves anybody with very basic skills and a screwdriver could do it as opposed to requiring somebody to get in there and solder it all together. So I love whenever there's the ability to do connectors, I love being able to do it that way without any soldering. Yeah, so that's um, that's the new version I'm, I'm making so of optimization. I think the, the board itself already showed that it's working, so I didn't make any any more changes to that. But uh, I want to optimize, you know, the yeah, like what you say, like the, the assembly and uh, flexibility to to do, you know, different uh, screens and these kind of things. That's uh, that's what I'm looking at right now. But again, if you look at what I, what I'm planning for the future is, um, it's definitely do something with the with the US model. So that's the V4, V5, and Majesco revisions. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also no documentation about those. Um, so for the for the first two revisions, the schematics leaked out. Um, but for the for the for those later revisions, there is nothing. Um, so that's also why I had something like, I, I there's something I can do. So there's also some something uh, somehow I can support community, and um, by you no know, reverse engineering what's on the board and how the board is, is functioning, and um, maybe also make a schematic based on on that. Um, but that's uh, yeah, that's a lot of work. <laughs> that's a lot of work. Um, and also the the thing is. The, the later revisions are also two-layer PCBs, um, so they they're uh, you know that, that's something I'm familiar with, something I um, uh, I can do. You know that's that's also things that matter because I think the first revision is a four-layer PCB, and then you get back to yeah, never done such things. So maybe if somebody can help me with how to you know separate those boards, I I might be willing to. Um, to work on those as well. So I got to ask, have you ever taken a look at the Sega Master System motherboard? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I did it. I, I, I have a Master System, but, uh, but I never looked at it, uh, to be honest. Uh, when I grow up, I, I, I grow up with handhelds. Hmm. Uh, so that, that, is, that is what, um, yeah, that is what. Because the Sega Master System is so unique in that you know, it has a lot of fans, especially in South America. Uh, a lot of people grew up with it. I ended up getting one randomly, even though nobody I knew had one except the kid who sold it to me when I was a kid. Uh, but it's it's unique in good and bad ways. You know, the bad way is that all of the U.S. ones that I've tested, at least the original model ones, are laid out so badly that you can't fix all of the interference in it. You would have to reroute the motherboard. Um and, you know, there's some PAL versions that you could get some fixes. The SMS2, you could get it cleaned up. But generally speaking, they're all going to be noisy unless you do an insane amount of work, if it's even possible. But on the good side of things, there are so many unique things about it, like the FM sound chip, uh, which was only built into the Japanese version or was an add-on module, Um, the 3D glasses, you know, there's, I think there's less than 10 games and only four of them are good, but they're really fun. And then of course there was the MK2000 carts, which you could get different stuff in there. So, uh, or different converters to play them. So I was always, I always had this idea and people had started projects, but I don't think anybody had fully completed them of 
reverse engineering that motherboard so that you could have something exactly like you did, where you just take out uh, any of the proprietary chips or the more expensive ones like the Sony CXA. You could totally reuse that encoder if you wanted to and have things like a Genesis 2 um, AV port so that way you could use more common cables, have the 3D glasses port in back already built in, and maybe even instead of the expansion slot in back, have the MK2000 cartridge port back there. And that way people who have master systems that want to play on original hardware could just desolder the four or five chips that would be the most efficient and then put them in. But it's a lot of work and people have come close. People have, uh, there's one person on the SMS power forums that did the open source design um, but there was a bunch of things with it that weren't completed, and I don't think they ever swung back around to finishing it. So it's one of those things where I would never I would never recommend that anybody do that unless they loved the master system, because you, you'll do a thousand hours worth of work to sell a hundred total, maybe, <laughs> whereas Game Gear, you'll probably sell a thousand of those. Uh, but if there's, if there's ever master system, super fans out there that wanted to work on that, you know, I think people would actually buy it, but not, not a lot. <laughs> Ed, talking about ours, yeah, I, when you start such a project, you use, like, it, it's a hobby, you know, like, if, if, if you do this commercially, I, I think it would never, you know, make sense. No. Uh, so you spend, I, I don't know how many hours I spend on this. Also, how, you know, like, setting up the, the BNP machine, I, I was simply, you know, taking a big jump because I, I, I I knew the existence of the machines, but I never operated one. So you you yeah, it's um, it's it's really like if if you're into such things, it it, it, it doesn't at some point you think like I want to make this work. Um, so you spend a lot of time, really a lot a lot of time in making something work. Um, but commercially, it, it doesn't make, it doesn't doesn't add yeah, up. Yeah, I always <laughs> joke that that's that's exactly what retro RGB is, and that like if I spent the same amount of hours on a minimum wage job sweeping floors that I spent on retro RGB, I'd make three times the money. <laughs> but you know, if you love it, you know, if you love it, and that's a, a, something that makes you happy, cool. But. I get it. These are passion projects that you do because you want to, not because you're trying to make money off of it. You know, and it's good that you do to pay for things like a pick and place machine. But, you know, it's, um, you know, it is a labor of love. Definitely. Yeah. This. Um, so how did you learn how to, to do all of this stuff? Is that your, is your day job board layouts and engineering, or is this just totally a hobby for you? At this, I actually work as a, a service provider engineer. So I I, I design uh, IP networks. Oh, cool. Um, so but uh, but I always like I had electronics as a hobby for when I, you know, since I was a kid. Actually, it was, I when I went to university when I made the decision to which university to go it was like either electronics or going to to it computer science um and then uh, back in the days the the uh the jobs for electronics electronic engineering it was really bad here because uh in the netherlands you know we have phillips and i was simply moving to to china 
<laughs> back in the time. So there were no jobs available. So I made the decision going for computer science instead of electronics. But yeah, in the background, you still, you know, keep on soldering and doing all kinds of things. Um, but yeah, like uh, maybe I, I made the wrong choice. Like, uh, <laughs> who knows? <laughs> The, the fun fact is that actually my wife, uh, she, she studied um, uh, electronics, mm-hmm. electronic engineering, um, but she went to IT. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think that's very common in that, you know, if you like two things and you're going to do one of them for a living, you're going to pick the one that has the best career path for you as a whole. So, you know, sometimes, unless you really love it, right? Like, I, I I love playing music. I love being in a band. But, like, I would be, I, I would probably be a stick figure right now eating one meal a day of ramen noodles and, you know, not, not having a CRT collection, not having a microphone. Like, I'd have to be completely poor if I wanted to only do that for a living. So, you got you to gotta choose what pays the bills and makes you happy. So, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those one of those interesting decisions, but it's, it's so funny to me to hear how many people that have become so, uh, so good and so recognized in the projects that they've done that they're just hobbies, you know, and it's just kind of funny. Like you know, all of Voltar's boards, he never went to electrical engineering school. This is stuff he just taught himself. And, you know, it's, it, it's kind of funny just to see, you know, people with the desire to do something, it, that's all it really takes is the desire and a little bit of knowledge and, and you can jump right into it. And it's a lot of times their day jobs and their hobbies don't cross paths at all. So. Yeah, that's exactly like it. The only, only, you know, the, the, the similarity I have with my Jade day job is that I, I work with cut tools, you know, like <laughs> to make the, the actual network drawings. There, there are some similarities. So I, you know, I, you, you get aware of, you know, that you need to make accurate drawings, accurate, you know, like positioning matters, like those things. Uh, at some point, you know, help you with creating a, a piece B layout. You know, you need to see how uh, things fit. You know, and 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 that's the same way you make a, a network drawings. You need to see how things fit together. You know, in, in one big picture, and that it also makes sense. Um, but for, for everything else, no. Like, uh, but, uh, well, also the the, um, the mentality of IT and, and all of this stuff. So uh, I'll tell you a story. My my first job, uh, corporate job, I was 19 years old, and I was the youngest person there by at least 20 years. And most of the people in the department were in their late 50s and early 60s. And one of the guys comes in one day and. He says, you know, somebody came up with an idea and he, oh, that won't work. And the person who came up with the idea said, you know, you're always so negative. Why can't you get behind all these ideas? And the older guy said, you know, my wife says the same thing. Every time she says, oh, should we go on vacation here? I always say, well, no, because it'll be crowded. And one time she, she yelled at me and said, why do you, why are you always so negative? And he said he realized his day job for 40 years is to open up the software and to figure out everything that could go wrong. So his whole life, subconsciously, every time he looks at something, he thinks what could go wrong in that scenario. So he he then had to make a conscious effort to be positive. And that story always stuck with me for two reasons. One, because I want to make sure to not be negative when, it, you know, to always try to be a positive outlook, but also... He was right in that everything IT related and in board layout, you have to you have to always approach it with, okay, what could go wrong? 
what could fail? What did the original design do that wasn't good? Like, how, like, let me pick this thing apart and figure out every little thing that could possibly be a mistake, whether it's original or my own. And so that is two parallel thinkings in board layout and in electronics design and all of IT is you're always thinking of what could break, what could go wrong, how could I fix that? So. Yeah, that, that's exactly like my, my day job is usually, you know, you know, create something and in the end you're, you spend more time, you know, solving incidents, solving, you know, things that are not implemented correctly. Like, like as a troubleshooter, you, you become really good uh, in, in IT because it's mainly about, you know, troubleshooting and solving things yeah. and, and making the right decisions. Um, and, and and that's that's mainly where I at least in my my job it's it's mainly about it. it's it has very less to do what what we learned at university. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why you know I'm not I'm certainly not putting down anybody that that's going to college and learning all the extra skills, but you need the real life implementation and the experience on top of that because some stuff you just there's no way you could be taught anything that that happens when things go wrong i had one company i worked for i was young i think it was like 23 and they were a sales company and the internet went down and because you know a pole was you know it's a truck crashed into a pole so it was probably going to be two or three days before it was fixed and it was in a busy season so they would have lost millions of dollars so everybody's saying, do we do we send everybody home? Do we try to do it over the phone? And I said, give me five minutes, I get an idea. And I took a couple of old laptops with the PCMCIA cellular internet cards. So, I mean, that's how old I am, right? Remember those ancient things? And I got up on the, you know, it, I, I mounted them to the uh, to the wall right next to a window, and I ended up running the internet off of the uh, off of those laptops throughout the company. And I had them in different zones, so different routers would go, or different switches would connect to different computers, so that they wouldn't all be sharing the same internet connection. And that's how they processed their sales for three days until the poll got fixed. It was a bunch of crappy laptops with PCMCIA wireless cards in there, and it's like I told some of my friends that, and half of them were like. That'll never work. That's so stupid. Why would you ever do that? And the other half is like, that's a good idea. I'll remember that trick for the next time. So it's you always got to deal with the crazy stuff that comes your way in, in all of these things, you know? Yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I, I think that, that those are really the things, you know, like I, I've been facing it during my work <laughs> as well, you know? Like you you really sometimes you need to be creative to make a solution and... Um, even if it's temporary and temporary becomes permanent. Uh, and, and yeah, like at some point you really, uh, yeah, you need to be creative working in, and especially in IT, uh, that's, uh, otherwise it, uh, it won't work. Yeah. You just said something that describes all of Sega's designs from the eighties and nineties. You have to be creative with your temporary solutions, but make sure those temporary solutions don't become permanent. Otherwise, you'll end up with, you know, a, a soundboard with, with a, on a ground plane that doesn't, you know, that buzzes when you when you put it near something. So that's pretty funny. And, and then you then you order a couple of million, and then uh, <laughs> yeah, find out the issue. Oh, that's funny. Um. So, hey, thank you very much for taking the time to do this. As soon as I saw Tito's video, I just I messaged him immediately and said, hey, can you put me in touch with this guy? I really want to talk to him. This looks awesome. Uh, it, and I had a great time bothering you with these questions. I, I liked uh, the whole story that you told was great. And I'm really interested to see the stuff that you come up with next because 
you know, the the way you approach it, your pick and place machine, the products that you've put out, these are all very cool things that I, I hope to see a lot more of you. And uh, I hope to see your, your hobby of this grow as, uh, as time goes on. So thank you for doing this. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for this. Of course. So people can find you on Instagram, uh, as well as your eBay store where you sell all of these things. And if they go to your eBay store and they can't find the boards, that just means they're out of stock and you'll you'll put them back when you get more stock, right? Yes, like I, I had a very small batch because it, it, it's hobby and I I think I'm wasting already a lot of money on my hobby. So I, I make small batches on boards because if they don't work, they don't work and simply waste of money. So I had only a very small batch of those boards. I assemble them, uh, put them on eBay and, and I think it was sold out in, in three hours or something. So there was a lot of, um, yeah. Uh, demand for it so i will order a new a new batch of boards and and most likely put them also on ebay but it takes me a bit you know to uh, to assemble them and to uh, make them ready um, but i hope in, in the next few weeks uh, i have an, a new batch available very cool uh, uh, with the timing of this podcast it might actually go out right about the time that you might have some available so cross your fingers but if you're listening to this just keep checking the ebay store you know do I think you could add to favorite sellers or something like that. eBay changes all the time, but yeah, just bookmark your store and, and keep checking back for, for when they go up. And I'll certainly do a post on retro RGB whenever they go live the next time again for people that want them. So make sure to put up a decent amount next time. Cause uh, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people interested that have single ASIC game gears. And I guess people that even don't because you know, they're, they're cheap enough now where you could find broken ones where you could just, kind of pick the the ugliest ones that are all smashed up by those the cheapest and you know one of them should be should be the single asic model so. yeah especially by the ones where you have leaking uh, batteries in it like <laughs> those are the are the best ones to uh yeah because the cheapest. as long as it doesn't corrode <laughs> through the main chip you're good to go so uh, most of the time i i had some one a few of them which actually had corrosion on the chip but if you if you clean them really good, it, it actually turns out that the chip is still intact and the 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 the, the pads, you know, or the, the little legs are also still good. Mm. And most of the time, this this battery stuff is is on top of it. Like you know, when you start cleaning it, it comes off pretty good, at least from the chip. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's worth a try. Huh? That's also that's. Uh... Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks again for doing this. I will keep in touch, and uh, I will obviously be following your work and post whenever you have a new project up.